0: Hi, and welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. This is a podcast in which two readers go through each Newberry medal-winning book, and then we talk about it. I'm Michael.
1: And I'm Rebecca.
0: And today, we are talking about Dear Mr. Henshaw by Beverly Cleary, the 1984 Newberry medal winner. Um, But first, a few things. Um... You may remember in a few, a few episodes ago, we asked, would you like to hear about um, books that we're currently reading that aren't Newbery Medal winners? And nobody said anything.
1: So we took that as a yes.
0: Yes. We did not hear anyone complain. Uh, and if you start complaining now, it's too late. This is now a feature of the show. Uh, the other thing is, don't forget that you can email us feedback um, at uh, Newbery Chronicles. Wait, is that it? Yeah, (laughs) newberrychronicles at gmail.com. Newberry with one R. Don't forget. Um, And uh, the only thing that we won't respond to is if you're complaining about us telling you about the books that we're currently reading. We'll delete those emails straight away. Um, So anyway, before we get to dear Mr. Henshaw, dear Rebecca, what are you
1: reading these days? Well, before I talk about that, I did just want to let everybody know... That if you were here for uproad Slowly, you remember how I started coughing violently in the middle of the episode. And you might also hear that this evening because I have a pretty bad cough. So I apologize in advance, if I'm doing my best. But it's not COVID
0: this time. It's
1: not COVID. Uh, Or the test said it wasn't. What
0: you're saying is that one of the things you've been reading are the directions on the NyQuil box.
1: Yes. But the other good things that I've been reading is um, I just actually finished Quinta Brunson's collection of essays called She Memes Well. Um, if you're not familiar with Quinta, she has done a lot of things. Um, most recently, what people are talking about is she is the creator and producer of Avid Elementary, in which she is also um, the main character, and she's marvelous, and her, I'd say, I thought that this was going to be a memoir, and it's kind of like that, but it's more, I don't know, um, you read Bossy Pants, right? Yeah. That's Tina Fey's book. It's similar to that, and she also talks about how much she loved that book in this book. So I feel like she kind of patterned it off of that, like it's just a collection of essays and reflections, but it's really funny and cute. And she and I have a lot of the same interests in TV shows and Disney Channel original <laughs> movies and shows. She loves even Stevens. So anyway, oh, wow. that was fun. It was a fun book. Yeah, it was a fun book. Um, right now, I am probably going to finish tonight Elliot Page's memoir called Page Boy. Um, it is very, very good. Um, he is a fantastic writer, has very beautiful prose and insight and... I wish, I wish this is one that I was not listening to. I'm, I'm listening to it on Libby for audiobook, but I think this would be a great one to read physically because there's a lot of sentences I would want to go back and read again because they're so good. Um, his story is very sad and moving and challenging, but I think he tells it really well, um, and I hope he's got a lot of good feedback because he's, you know, like in any memoir, you're using a lot of vulnerability, and his journey is one of, a lot of vulnerability, so it's really good. And then I'm also reading um, my first Anne Patchett novel, Bel Canto. So far, it's amazing. I'm not very far into it, but it's very riveting, um, great prose, and yeah, I like it. What are you reading, Michael?
0: Well, I just finished, if we're going to say things that we've already finished, I just finished Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, Octavia Butler's, I guess a fairly famous sci-fi writer, although everyone I talked to doesn't know who she is, but in my head she was famous. Um, well known as like kind of like an Afrofuturist writer, and um, this novel is not Afrofuturist. Um, Parable of Sower is about um, the distant future of 2024, which when she was writing the book in the late 80s, I think that was a bit more of a distant future. But it's a future in which climate change has accelerated to the point that... Um, society and and like kind of social structures people would rely on in in another age have started breaking down. Um, the, um, America has, you know, become unsafe. People are in poverty because food has become so expensive. And, um, so the remaining communities have to kind of like fend for themselves, um, rather than rely on a kind of like social fabric that like we might, used today in like a city or something like that um so it's a dystopian novel and uh it's also um like this woman's journal and octavia butler's uh vision for this book it was planned to be a trilogy she only wrote two of the books and then she died um
1: oh that's sad
0: yeah but she took a long time she died in 2005 and she wrote this book in 1992 so um, it's kinda of like a George R.R. R. Martin situation, I think, where she didn't like rush to finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, her goal was that A, she wanted to take the social issues she thought she saw as like pertinent to the early nineties or late eighties, and then kind of extrapolate what will they mean what will they be like in the future, and write that from the perspective of not putting any other obviously sci-fi elements in it, so there's no new technology, there's no aliens or any of the things you might expect in sci-fi, it's just she's imagining what will the future be like in like 30 years from now. Um, the other thing that she uh, was interested in is, um, she the, the framework of the book is like at the beginning of each chapter, this is like a journal of this woman, or really like a teenager, and at the beginning of each chapter, there's little quotes from something called Earthseed. And so the other thing that, the, that Octavia Butler was trying to do is, in this trilogy, show how like the beginnings of a religion, um, the girl who is the protagonist, her father is like a Baptist minister, um, but she is kind of like developing her own ideas about God that are like a little bit divergent from that. And so by the end of the book, you kind of start seeing her start to spread some of these ideas that she's been kind of incubating in her mind. Um, And so Octavia Butler was trying to think about, like, what would a person who becomes a religious figure hundreds of years down the line as people were reflecting over it, what would she be like? Um, I read this because I was, I thought I might assign it in my AP literature class that I'm supposed to teach here in the fall. Um, And I don't know that it will work for an AP lit class. The prose is a little bit like, um, well, it. It's it's like journals, so it's not like super. It's not meant to be super like you know ornate, and there there are issues and themes, but it's probably issues and themes that aren't like super conducive to like classroom discussion of like chapter by chapter, like you might do in an AP class. I might assign it for like optional outside of class reading or something like that. Yeah. But um, I was a little disappointed about that. That I don't think I, I'm going to teach it in class. Um, I spent a long time on that. So the other two or the other books I'm reading, I'll really quickly go through. Um, I am reading a new-ish 2021 translation of the Gospel of Luke, um, which is in this larger book called The Gospels, um, which is kind of this project by Sarah Rudin, who's someone I don't know, um, (laughs) like basically making a new translation of the Gospels. She like um, tries to transliterate like the actual pronunciations of names and she does a few other things, too, that she thinks are kind of she's trying to do that are unique. Um, she also tries to consider the Gospels in their, like, lit- original literary form, um, which is, like, she, she points out, like, has some continuity with, like, um, you know, s- pagan or secular literature of the time, but is also kind of, like, innovating a new form of, like, Gospel, which is kind of like this mix of religious tract with, like, biography. Um, at any rate, I found it in the library. It seemed interesting, and our church is going to be doing the Gospel of Luke in the fall. Um, so I was interested in that, and at the same time also picked up, uh, the Cambridge Bible Commentary of the New English Bible and their specific volume on the Gospel According to Luke, so E.J. Tinsley is writing this commentary, I'm reading that as I'm reading this new translation, that's from the 60s, so it's kind of like a weird, like, back and forth where there'll be a footnote in a new one about, like, here's what this manuscript says, and then the old one they don't have anything like that, um, because that manuscript wasn't discovered yet, or that may not have been aware, um or that may not have been something that the commentator was aware of in the 1960s. Lastly, and and shortly, because I'm not finished with it, but I'm also reading James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, James Joyce is really famous uh, Irish author from the early to mid-20th century, um, really kind of like one of the pillars of what's known as like high modernism, so like Virginia Woolf and um, uh, like T.S. Eliot and um, like William Faulkner, and these kind of like experimental writers. And Me and a friend are reading through... James Joyce's work. Um, Specifically, we wanted to read Ulysses because we had both read the other two books before, um, which are Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And it's wild. There are long sections where I'm confused and don't know what's going on, and sometimes it's, like, boring and, like, too hard to understand. Other times it's really bizarre and interesting. Um, And I'm, like, two-thirds of the way through it. Probably I'm not going to finish it by the end of the summer, which was my plan. Um, But I'll finish it one of these days. Um, You're close. I'm close anyway that's that's what we're reading um, you'll probably notice if we do this again Rebecca's things that she's reading change a lot quicker than the things that I read um, because Rebecca is a monster on the Libby app she listens <laughs> at 1.5 speed which I can get behind except that I'm I don't... also
1: not reading James Joyce
0: yeah but you did don't or let Rebecca sell herself short like she read a Virginia Wolf novel um, earlier this months. year. Well, I'm reading James Joyce okay. over several months. So, uh, Rebecca reads at a much quicker pace than I do because she does audiobooks, and I have trouble comprehending audiobooks. So, I'm stuck with the written word. Um, and speaking of the written word, Beverly clearly <laughs> wrote a few words.
1: She wrote so many beautiful words. Let's transition that we're to talk dear Mr. Henshaw.
0: Um, but first, before we talk about the novel, Rebecca, you are going to tell us about Beverly Cleary. And just, I don't know if you're going to mention this, but Rebecca read an entire yeah. biography on Beverly Cleary several years ago, so she's kind of um, exhuming her memories of that novel,
1: well, or that
0: biography. I gave her that biography, yeah, by the way. I want to take credit for that. You
1: did, and it was a beautiful, perfect gift. Um, it was so great. Um, so anyway, let's talk about Beverly. She was born Bev. Beverly Atlee Bun. On April 12th, 1960 She leveled up
0: with her married name.
1: Okay. In McMinnville, Oregon. Um, she was the descendant of pioneers, um, which you'll learn about in this memoir that Michael's talking about. Her dad was a farmer, and her mom was a school teacher. She lived in rural Yamhill, Oregon, in early childhood. And that's what her memoir is about. It's about her early childhood. It's called A Girl from Yamhill. Um, she also wrote a second memoir that I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, she was raised Presbyterian. And what I will say about that memoir is I don't remember a lot of details of it. I would like to reread it, but I do remember being just as charmed with her work as ever. Um, she writes in her same beautiful style, just telling her stories really well with humorous um, anecdotes without making them flashy or fancy, um, just prisoning life with a lot of care and detail and insight. Um, while also mixing in the humor with that. So I I remember just being thrilled with that book, and I would like to reread it. Um, When she was six, (coughs) there it goes, she moved to Portland, Oregon, where her father started working as a bank security officer. Um, This was a really difficult transition for her. She did talk about this in her memoir. She really struggled in school. And um, at the school that she was, in first grade, they would. Um, it's called ability grouping, right? Or how you divide people based on their like learning development. Yeah, and
0: if and if that's like if that leads to like a path through the grades, you call it tracking. Normally. Okay, like you know the college track or the. Vocational track or something.
1: Well, in that same vein, the first grade was sorted into three reading groups: the bluebirds, redbirds, and blackbirds. And she said, "I was a blackbird." Not racist at all, I'm sure. But to there be there are a, real
0: blackbirds. To we be can evoke that bird without <laughs>
1: okay. The specter but, of race. Well, to be a blackbird was to be disgraced. Oh. I wanted to read, but somehow could not. Um, so not. she really struggled and um, was kind of labeled for that. Um, it was hard for her to really get into reading and develop her reading skills, probably because of those struggles. But also, she just found the books available to her to be really boring. She didn't understand why people liked to read and it was just very laborious for her until (coughs) she discovered The Dutch Twins by Lucy Fitch Perkins. And she found books that were humorous and that were written about really vivid characters. And she really started to loving to read after that. Um, and when she was in the sixth grade, her, she had a teacher that recognized her abilities in writing and really praised her for that and that kind of really inspired her. Um, she graduated from Grant High School in 1934 and she went to Chaffee Junior College in Ontario, California, which offered lower tuition fees than four-year universities, which was really important because this was during the Great Depression. Um, And after two years at Chaffee, she was accepted at UC Berkeley and got her B.A. in English. She met her husband, Clarence Cleary. Clarence Cleary, oh my gosh. That sounds like a Beverly Cleary
0: character.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I can't laugh, guys. Um, Just a little bit about them. Her parents really disapproved of her relationship with Clarence because he was Catholic. They were Presbyterian. So they eloped in 1940. That's
0: that UC Berkeley rebellion coming through. right?
1: But she graduated in 1939 from the School of Librarianship at the University of Washington with her second bachelor's degree in library science. She was a children's librarian at Yakima, Washington, and she worked there for one year. And then she got a job as a librarian at a U.S. Army hospital. Um, She also worked at a bookshop after she became a full-time writer to children. So after World War II she and her husband settled in Carmel by the Sea, California. This is Carmel by the Sea, California. and this is actually where she died. Um, in 1955 she gave birth to two twins, well duh, two twins, Malcolm and Marianne. And then she died in 2021 at the age of 104. So before I talk about all of her um, accolades and she had a ton um, and a little bit more about her career, I just wanted to let people know. That another one of our beloved Newberry artists, um, this very near and dear to my heart, Kate DeCamillo, wrote a beautiful tribute to Beverly Clary when she died. And if anyone is interested, I will send that to you because it just warmed my heart dearly. Um, Okay, so when she was a librarian, she found um, it really difficult to find enough books with characters that the kids could identify with that she was trying to help find good books. So she just started writing her own. Isn't that the the most charming, beautiful thing? It is so sweet. So she just started writing her own about characters that young readers could relate to. Um, And there's a quote I want to read to you. She said, I believe in that missionary spirit among children's librarians. Kids deserve books of literary quality, and librarians are so important in encouraging them to read and selecting books that are appropriate. And I just think that is fewer, truer statements have been said. Um, so her first book was Henry Huggins in 1950, and that was the first of a series that also featured the beloved characters Ramona Quimby and her sister Beezus and his dog rib, rib, Ribsy. Ribsy, Ribsy. Ribsy, right. I, I knew it wasn't Ribsby, but I couldn't get it right. Ribsby? Um. <laughs> And she also wrote a series about Ramona and Beezus um, and their family. She took inspiration for Henry Huggins from the times that she composed stories for children during Saturday afternoon story hours in Yakima. Her one year as a children's librarian kind of set her whole trajectory of Wait,
0: so she composed the stories for story hour? Isn't that great? What a chance.
1: I know. Um, So anyway, her books are mostly about Middle-class families, I should specify middle-class white families. Um, that's not specified in Wikipedia, but just from reading her work, I know that's what they're about. Just living their ordinary lives. Um, the majority of her books are set in Grant Park in Portland, and there are apparently many statues and tributes to both Clary and her characters there today.
0: There's a real Clickatat Street, which is where there a bunch is. of the characters live. In the yeah,
1: room. and she lived a few streets over from Clickitat Street growing up, and I think she, she just... Really liked the name of that street, and she said something really cute about that, but I can't remember what it was. Anyway, <clears throat> there's a lot to say about this woman. She wrote a second memoir in 1995, which I have not read, called My Own Two Feet, that chronicles her years in college until the time of writing her first book. And in a 2011 interview at the age of 95, she said, I've had an exceptionally happy career. And 91 million copies of her books have been sold worldwide, making her one of America's most successful authors. So some things that critics really praise and recognize her for are her attention to the daily minutia of childhood, as well as her use of humor, which I can definitely say that's what Mia and Michael love about her books. And others have said that her books have lasted because she understands her audience. Um, People said she was decades ahead of her time in terms of the topics she wrote about, her honesty her accuracy, and her ability to portray real-life children. So, the awards that she's won. Um, She won the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award in 1975. She was nominated for the Hans Christian Andersen Award in 1984. In 2000, she was named Library of Congress Living Legend in the Writers and Artists category for her contributions to the cultural heritage of the United States. Um, She won the National Medal of Arts In 2003, she obviously won the Newbery Award for Dear Mr. Hinshaw in 1984. She got Newbery Honors for Ramona and Her Father in 1978, and Ramona Quimby, age 8, in 1982, which I would say are both better books than Dear Mr. Hinshaw, but we'll get to that later. Um, She won the 1981 National Book Award for children's fiction, specifically for paperback. I don't know why they have to specify that. Yeah. But anyway... For Ramona and her mother, she won a William Allen White Children's Book Award for a book she wrote in 1973
0: called Socks. I remember seeing that on the library shelves.
1: Oh, really? Well, we should read
0: it. It's an Upper Road Slowly situation where, (laughs) why would I want to read a book about socks? I think socks is a cat name or something. Oh, probably.
1: Um, She won the Catholic Library Association's Regina Medal in 1980, and the children's book Council's every child award in 1985. So the last thing I'll say about her is a lot of places in Portland and other areas where she has lived have been named after her. Um, her elementary school's name, that she, the, the elementary school where she attended, was changed from Fernwood Grammar School in 2008 to Beverly Clary School, for example. So I just think those things kind of really speak to her lasting legacy. And that's all I have to say about her, which is a really long author bio. But you should also read her memoirs.
0: At least the first one. We can't vouch for the second one.
1: But I will read it and report back. Maybe it's on the Loopy app.
0: (laughs) Maybe. maybe.
1: Anyway, go ahead. All
0: right, well, it's now my turn to talk about the plot of this book, which is going to be fairly easy because this book is short. um, Like... Summer of the Swans. Um, So Dear Mr. Henshaw is unlike a lot of Beverly Cleary books, in which it doesn't really connect to any of the characters. A lot of her books are about the same characters, or even when they're not about those characters, you will hear references to locations and stuff like that, so you know it's like in the same universe. And unless I miss something, this doesn't seem to be at all connected with Cliquitat Street or Portland or or anything, really, um, that she's written about. It is a book about this um, kid named Lee Botts, and it's called Dear Mr. Henshaw because there's this guy whose name is Mr. Henshaw, and I am forgetting his first name. Um, I'm not sure if he is given a first name, but he's written this book, this novel, called... Boyd.
1: Boyd Boyd Henshaw.
0: That's a great name. Um, He's written this book called Ways to Amuse a Dog, which is a novel, um, and Lee Botts really likes it. And he's decided Mr. Henshaw his favorite author. And so at the the book begins with... Um, he's given um, the book by his teacher, um, I think. And then he decides to write Mr. Henshaw about how much he likes it. Uh, and so he writes it. And we never see what Mr. Henshaw's correspondence are back. All we see, the entire text of the book, is just Lee's, um, Lee's uh, letters to him. And eventually... He recognized, uh, Mr. Henshaw apparently suggests like, why don't you start writing this down in a journal instead of writing to me, <laughs> which is, uh, and so we eventually switch to his journal where he's still writing to Mr. Henshaw, but just pretend Mr. Henshaw. Um, and then he'll occasionally write to Mr. Henshaw for real throughout the book as well. But then probably the majority of the book is his journal. So it's like an epistolary novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but we never see the responses, um,
1: I just looked it up because I have forgotten as well, but this book is set in Bakersfield, California.
0: Okay, so I guess it's potentially in the same universe as Ramona and all them, just uh, not in the same state. Um, They do mention that in the book, though. Mm -hmm. I Um, just forgot. Lee uh, is uh, a boy with um, a mother that he lives with, um, no siblings, um, and his mother has divorced his father. And his father is a trucker, and so he's gone a lot. Um, And he, of course, doesn't even live with them when he's around. Um, And so a lot of the book is Lee being kind of lonely and, like, missing his dad and being alternately mad at his mom or his dad um, because they're split up or because of different things that they'll do. And especially, like, a big arc in the book is him kind of coming to terms with the kind of person his dad is because he's with his mom every day. But he only sees his dad very intermittently, and his dad is not super reliable. It doesn't seem like he's consistently mailing child support checks. Uh, it doesn't seem like he... Well, it, he definitely is not always keeping his promises to Lee. He says he'll do this or won't do that, and then you know he'll kind of not come through with those things. Um, but at least at the beginning of the book, Lee is very... Um, he looks up to his dad a lot and misses his dad, understandably, And he's kind of mad at his mom, and then, like, there's kind of an arc in the book of kind of starting to understand, like, why his parents divorced. Um, And then, at the same time, you have um, him at school, where he seems kind of like, I don't know, he's like in elementary school, so, like, elementary school kids don't... um, don't always have the same sort of social groups that like middle or high school kids would have. But he, even within that kind of like weird elementary school socialization, he seems kind of like alone. Mm -hmm. Um, He uh, is picked on a little bit. People keep stealing stuff out of his lunch. And so there's like a little arc in the book where he makes, he decides he's going to like make an alarm on his lunchbox so that um, people can't steal stuff out of his lunchbox anymore and, uh, he eventually you know, connects with some friends and uh, through that and gets some credibility in the class because they admire his lunchbox alarm. Um, and uh, he also is starting to be interested in being a writer because uh, of how much he loves uh, ways to amuse a dog. Um, he starts thinking about how he can write his own stories, and um, so he spends a little bit of time um, talking about how he's going to start trying to write stuff too. Um, but for the most part... It's like a lot of Beverly Cleary books, which is it's it's highly episodic with like kind of like a strong through line of like a kind of emotional theme throughout Mm. the book. Um, And a lot of it is just kind of like observational stuff about like what it is to be this particular child in this particular moment. Um, And I would say unlike a lot of Beverly Cleary books, it's fairly um, it's fairly melancholy It also doesn't have a lot of the kind of like hijinks that sometimes like Beverly Cleary books did. Like Rebecca talks about Henry Huggins and that first book is almost entirely hijinks, right? Like every chapter is like Henry tries to do something and it goes awry and he has to like, you know, kind of scramble to get things back in order. And this is much more laid back than that. Um, It's, uh, again, just mostly observational stuff about this. Uh, child is he kind of like grapples with some fairly difficult stuff for you know things that would be difficult for anyone but especially for a kid like trying to understand like that his parents are flawed um, or trying to understand that he can only really trust one of his parents or trying to understand um, what love is or trying to understand like social class at times because he and his mom seem to be kind of not not like they're not like destitute but like after the divorce, they've kind of like downgraded in terms of like how they live and stuff. There's a repeated like motif of uh, him bringing up they live like next to a gas station um, and they can hear like the gas pump running all the time. Um, and I there's just little elements like that that are kind of like indicating like social class. They live in a
1: mobile home.
0: Yeah, mobile home. Um, anyway. It's the kind of book that I've spent a lot of time summarizing it, but it's also the kind of book that you don't really need to summarize that much because it's not it's not about plot like uh, it's mostly just about getting to know this kid and watching him kind of develop over the course of a period of time. Yeah. Um,
1: what what, do you
0: what, what do you like about this book Rebecca Well,
1: one another important detail I think to include is that Clary wrote this book because two little boys who didn't know one another had asked her to write about a boy whose parents were divorced. And she had never thought about it, but said she'd give it a try. And I think she hits the ball out of the park, as always. The Newberry um, medalists seem to think so. I mean, yeah. I just... Gosh, to have that much talent. Um, anyway, what I liked about this book is Cleary is just doing what she does best. Um, she... I, I just... I I don't love books that are letters like that's just not my epistolary novel that's not my favorite type of book but if anybody's going to do it I want her to do it um, I think she does a really good job of capturing a fourteen year old boy's voice and Wait, just he's fourteen right
0: I thought he was much younger I no in elementary I think,
1: school oh I'm sorry I was thinking of the sequel Strider.
0: There's a sequel to this Yeah, book? I've
1: read it, but I have forgot that it existed till so I was reading the Wikipedia page. She writes a a sequel called Strider, which is when he's 14 and starting high school.
0: So he's in the 6th <clears> grade in this book. Yeah, he's so that in the 6th grade. He's like 11. 11 or something, he's 11. You know?
1: I'm sorry, that was just an accident. Capturing the heart of an 11-year-old child that doesn't really understand what's going on with his parents but is very lonely but finds this book and solace and doesn't really have any understanding of like social cues or why he might be irritating somebody and just, I don't know. You also get to see, I like that you get to know about his mom really well, even when we don't hear her directly. Um, But there's this scene that I think is really poignant where Lee is talking to his dad on the phone and he's already mad at his dad because he has like not called him in a really long time and so he just he's just mad at him for not keeping his promises and mad at him for not being around and things are just falling apart at school and he just can't get a handle on things and then he hears in the background of his dad's call like some boy asking his dad if if it said like hey mom's wondering when we're gonna go pick up the pizza and that just like breaks him. And so that scene just really stands out in my mind of like just really well done how you can see all the emotions that are going on there and it just made me really sad. Um I think this story is really sad and funny at the same time. Um, I really love the relationship between Lee and his mom and also Mr. Fridley at school I think Mr. Fridley's like is
0: he the custodian? a
1: custodian of some sort, but he really um, like notices Lee and pays attention to him and like lets him come in the morning early to help him get the flags up. Just give him some like responsibility and sense of purpose because you can tell this kid's really lonely. And I think he's just really sweet. Um, I also really love that you can tell Mr. Henshaw is, is super irritated with this kid. Like he, yeah, he doesn't he seem do- like a
0: very cuddly
1: author. <laughs> well, I mean, he teases Lee... Because the whole premise is that um, Lee is given this assignment at school that they have to write to one of their favorite authors. And all he does is just write, Mr. Henshaw, these are the questions about the author. Can you answer them, please? And, well, they're supposed to do a report about their favorite author. I'm sorry. And so Mr. Henshaw teases him about not doing his own research... And then instead sends him a whole list of questions. And then Lee is mad that he has to answer all these questions because his mom found out and makes him answer them. And so he's just, like, ragging on Mr. Hinshaw the whole time. And then, I don't know, you can tell that when Mr. Hinshaw is suggesting he writes this in a diary, it's because he's tired of getting all these letters. But I don't know. I just think it's really funny how you can see that, but Lee doesn't get it the whole time. Um, And I also think it's sweet just knowing that that Beverly Clary had a teacher in sixth grade that recognized her and said, "You know, you really have a talent for writing. You should keep doing this." And that Lee is also in sixth grade, and he, at the end, he gets to meet a famous author because of a story that he wrote that gets honorable mention. Originally, he wasn't wasn't going to be able to meet the author, but another kid was caught cheating, so he gets to meet her, and he's sad that it's not Mr. Henshaw, but she ends up telling him that how much she loved his story and how he should keep writing. So it was just sweet to me that you can see her in the life of this 11-year-old. And just the value of having trusted adults that see children and recognize their talents and let them know that they do. And I just think that's so important in the life of every single child to have someone in their life um, just recognizing their talents and encouraging them to continue. So that's what I liked
0: good um I liked a lot of those same things I was um one of the things that I actually really like about this book and it's gonna sound negative at first but it's kind of boring at first um yes be but this book does a really great (laughs) job of like slowly piling up complexities and it's not like complexities like a lot of novels would have where it's like plot twists or anything like that obviously like since we've already summarized it but just like the book introduces a very straightforward premise like I'm writing this author and oh my parents are divorced and I'm I don't know how I feel about that um and I'm at school and the kids pick on me like very like it could be any child like middle grade children's book like um and as the book goes on it still could be any middle grade children's book in terms of like what is actually going on But in terms of how it's actually done, it just gets more textured and nuanced and complex as it goes on until you get to the end of the book. And it's really... um, What's the word? It's, like, really sophisticated in terms of, like, what's actually happening in the scenes. And it's not, like, sophisticated in a way that's transcended the, the kind of, like... Um, genre or age group that it's written at but it's able because it's like slowly layered on all these things as the book goes on it's able to deal with some really complex and like um, you know very subtly done but very um, you know complexly done scenes in ways that are A like really accessible given the trajectory of the book but B like kind of incredible based on like this based on how the book starts like the last scene of the book is him recounting how the only time we see if i remember right the only time that he actually sees his dad within the course of this book everything else is like phone calls and stuff mm-hmm. or postcards and his dad comes back to um the house where they are and um it's this scene where he finally is face-to-face with his dad and he doesn't know what to say. And his dad is kind of, like, awkward. And then it becomes clear that the reason why he's come back to the house is not to see Lee, but to see his mom, his ex-wife, mm-hmm. uh, because he says he's lonely and wants to get back together. Oh, I think about you at nights and whatever. like, And his mom just rebuffs him and says no I can't do that anymore um and Lee like understands and I think that like us as adults understand that like it's more or less a booty call you know Mm -hmm. like that he's coming back um but even like through the perspective of a child like the way that the book has progressed that interaction makes sense and it makes sense to Lee and the fact that it makes sense to Lee in that scene they're not really saying a lot but um like the way that it describes the um like their interactions is done in such a way that you can you can infer infer so much stuff you know like he leaves and like uh this is the last paragraph of the book um after his dad leaves um let's see when i went inside mom was sipping her coffee and sort of staring into space, I went into my room, shut the door, and sat listening to the gas station go ping, ping, ping. Maybe it was broccoli that Dad brought that brought Dad to Salinas, which is where they live. Um, but he had come the rest of the way because he really wanted to see us. He had really missed us. I felt sad and a whole lot better at the same time. And that's it. Yeah, like that scene ends, and it doesn't really explain. It doesn't explain what his mom is feeling. It just says she's staring into space. It has him feeling this ambivalence at the end of the book. But it doesn't feel like you're being left off with, like, well, what was the point of that scene? Like, it's this very pointed scene that doesn't really explain itself, except that it does through exclusively telling – or showing stuff, stuff like, showing how these yeah. characters interact. And I just think it's really great how the story eventually is doing that, because at the beginning it's very simple. Like, Dear Mr. Henshaw, I'm in class um, – Oh, like, here's here's the first page. You're Mr. Henshaw. My teacher read your book about the dog to our class. It was funny. We licked it, which is a misspelling of liked it. Um, <laughs> your friend, and friend is also misspelled, Lee Botts. And then in parentheses, is boy. Like, that's how the book begins, and that's kind of like the tone, is at the at the beginning. And then, like, as he shares more and as he experiences more, it just snowballs into something that's, it's not bigger than what it begins as it just is deeper and and more shaded in and i just think mm-hmm. it's really uh it's really tremendous how it does that like yeah the way that it builds is like as as complex and as insightful about these characters as any like adult fiction book would be yeah um
1: i also really like that it centers around his love mm-hmm. and appreciation for a funny book that begins this whole journey. And then later on, he talks about another book that he reads by Mr. Henshaw that is, he thought was going to be funny and ends up not being at all. But he, he understands how it's important to write different kinds of stories and to learn and grow from those. And I, just, I love that this is a book about a kid growing up in a difficult situation like, reading and just processing through writing. I just think she does that really well. Like, she she praises her own right. art form without being, like, on the nose about it.
0: Right. And I think that she's also, again, within the constraints of a very identifiable, like, age group and type of novel, like, she's able to make things, like, surprising without, without being, like, v- without violating the kind of rules of, like, what... These sorts of books are supposed to be like so, like for example, the um, the little plot about kids are stealing stuff from his lunch, mm-hmm. like that builds to. Man, I, mean, I was ca-
1: mad for him.
0: Yeah, like I mean, his daily, like his lunch, like like the cookie out of his lunch gets stolen. Well, that and
1: his stuff. mom works for a catering company, so he has really special treats in his lunch, right? That keep getting stolen,
0: and like that's you know. But he, he learns, he teaches himself how to make a little, like, electronic alarm, and...
1: With the help he, of the guy in, the auto, like, the um, hardware store. Yeah. Remember
0: that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the kind of, the thing that you expect this to be building to is, like, oh, he's going to find out who it is, and right. he's going to, like um you know have a big moment where he gets to stand up for himself to this guy who's been like bullying him and we don't know you know he doesn't know who it is and we in the book don't know because we're all in lee's perspective um but what it really builds to is this moment where uh all the kids are really intrigued by lee's lunch alarm and they want to they want him to Build ones for himself, and he connects with the kid because he goes over to this other kid's house, and they try to build an alarm for his door because this kid's sister is always getting into his room and all that. And then um, the school gets really irritated that all these kids have lunch alarms because they're all kind of like annoying because they're really loud. And they just said like nobody sh- don't do lunch lunchbox alarms anymore. And that's how it ends. And Lee is like, well, I never catch caught the person, but it would have been kind of awkward to have to spend the rest of the year in class with this kid that yeah. had been stealing all my lunch. And so, like, it builds to a satisfying conclusion in the sense of he gets something out of it, you know. Mm. He gets a new friend. <clears throat> um, he gets kind of, like, again, like I said, credibility in his and class. And whoever
1: was doing that was probably scared and didn't do it again. So right, it's like... but
0: it also doesn't – It's but it's surprising, you know. Yeah. It, it has this, um, you know, element of, like um, like – moment of maturity where he realizes, like, it actually is better that I don't know who did it. Right.
1: It's,
0: you know, which, you know, is, is really kind of, uh, it's a very, again, like, sophisticated way to do it without, like, being something that's, like, you know, really, um, because a lot of times, you know, when you're trying to subvert expectations... You can also kind of subvert the kind of like pleasure that comes from like mm-hmm. traditional story structures and stuff, and um, that that's not what's happening. She's just finding ways to make the story surprising in little small ways, um, while still kind of feeling like you're being paid off. Yeah. Um. Did you not like anything about this book?
1: I did. The only thing that I didn't like is. Everything you were saying about the last scene is true, and it's goodness. I think that conversation the dad has with the mom in front of Lee is both very awkward and very unrealistic. I feel like, so basically they're sitting in the living room, and they're drinking coffee, and Lee's in there the whole time, and the dad's like, so are you going to come back to me? I'm talking to the mom. I, I would have much preferred, and I think it would have made a lot more sense If Lee had been in another room and had overheard this conversation, or like had that scene where you overhear the conversation at the car before the person leaves, it just made me feel awkward to think about this kid just sitting in the room while the dad is like overtly asking the mom, like, you get back together with me. I don't know. That's the only complaint that I had, though, which is very minor. I think the scene is done well. I just feel like it would have been better if he had just like observed that conversation from... Like not been in it.
0: I think for me that works. Yeah. As realistic to me because again throughout the book, Lee is kind of realizing how little, like how careless his dad is, Yeah. And like realizing that maybe his dad, you know, cares about Lee on some level, but not enough to actually follow through on the things that he says. And like, I don't know. There's I already I already mentioned this, but like I think one of the things that's kind of about that scene is the way that it becomes apparent that yeah. what the dad cares about is the mom, not Lee. Right.
1: But I'm saying, know? yeah. And I, I
0: think that, like, the fact that he has that conversation, he initiates that conversation in front of Lee with his mom, like, he's not even thinking about Lee being there. Like, it's just like another, wow. like, uh, affirmation that like, this dad you know, doesn't really know how to be a dad. Mm-hmm. To the point that, like, he acts as if he's not a dad a lot of yeah. times, and I, I don't know. I understand what you mean, but I also think that it worked for me because of what it showed about the dad that he would have that conversation just right there, right? You know, and it appears that he's not even at the house very long. Like, he, no, they he comes eat
1: dinner with them. He doesn't. He, they don't even finish their coffee.
0: He comes. He's like, "Will you, will you come back to me?" And she's like, "No." And he's like, "Okay." And he leaves. Like that's all. He doesn't and he spend time the with dog. Him. He doesn't, though, because Lee at the end says, oh, that's oh you right. should keep the dog. That's right, that's right. He's had a dog this whole time. Um, the dad has. Um, and he loses him for a minute, and that's Lee's been really mad at him for that, and he comes back. Um, but I don't know. There's something really stark and about that, how the dad really came just for one reason. And when he found out yeah. that, that reason wasn't going to happen, he left. It, he didn't stay and spend extra time with Lee right um and leak is at peace with that at the end of the mm-hmm. book you know he, ah, it just he makes finds
1: me so sad
0: you know he finds he finds a sort of um he's, he's not happy about it right but he finds a way to like have contentment with the kind of man his father is yeah um and I don't know I think that that last scene really works well because of that
1: yeah what did you was there anything you didn't like
0: um Okay, the one thing I'd... It's not like I strongly dislike it. Well, one, I already said that I think the beginning of the book is a little boring. Mm-hmm. And I like that the arc makes it more complex. But I I still don't think the beginning of the book is super engaging. Um, yeah. The other thing is the janitor who's at the school. It's like, he's kind of a type, you know? Like, the kind of, like, kindly old man who takes interest in this lonely kid or whatever and is always just, like, dispensing advice, like unlike a lot of characters in the book, he never becomes anything more than just, like, a stock character. And that would be fine if he was in, like, one or two scenes, but he's, like, a fairly major part of the book.
1: I think he's
0: sweet. He is sweet. I mean, this is the, the stock character is, like, a sweet old man who's a little bit rough around the edges, but he's got a heart of gold, and he takes a shine to this young kid who's, you know, lonely, like, and dispenses wisdom and helps him, but also, like is you know serious about like life struggles and like you know it's not that he's like bad but the those are the moments where i felt like i was verging into like oh i've seen this movie and this is a movie and he felt like a character from a book that was much less thoughtful mm-hmm. than good or um dear mr henshaw um i don't know i didn't really like his character i didn't dislike him but he just doesn't He didn't have the, the nuance or the, um, you know, resonance of a lot of the rest of the book, I didn't think. Um, so yeah, otherwise, like, I, I had, we've both read this book before, right? Yeah. But I had not since grade school. It's
1: been a long time.
0: Like, I read a ton of Beverly Cleary books in elementary school, and honestly really have not read very much Beverly Cleary since, but, um. I read a ton of her books in grade school, and this is one of them I read. I remember liking it, but I didn't remember anything about it except that it was letters and that his dad was gone. Um, and so I was glad returning to it mm-hmm. that I liked it because when I first started reading it, I was like, oh, man, this is kind of boring. Maybe yeah. I was wrong as a kid.
1: Yeah. No, I, th- I think it's great. Two thumbs up.
0: Two thumbs up. So is that four thumbs up, two thumbs from both of us? Yeah, I guess so. All right. Um, well, do you have any other thoughts on Mr. Inchell?
1: No. You should read it, and you should read um, really everything that she's written. So Michael doesn't like her books that she wrote for Teeny Boppers, but I think they're fun. So I, when you
0: when you say I don't like them, you what you mean them. is I've never read them, and they don't okay. seem appealing to me. I don't think
1: you would like it. I loved Gina Johnny, but I don't know that you would like it. Anyway.
0: I do think, like, this is an author that we're, we've read a ton of books from, which is not normal for this podcast because a lot of these authors we're not familiar with outside of it, or we are familiar, but we've not read a ton of their books. Um, But you and I both are, have read a lot of Beverly Clear books, and I will say that like, you mentioned this already, but this is not our best book, Um, (coughs) and it kind of feels like there's this thing that happens with artists where a lot of times they'll get major awards for work that's later in their career that's maybe not their most iconic work or their best work but it's it's almost like well we have to give them an award for something and here's a good thing that they wrote recently and so they get, yeah. you know like in in movies like martin scorsese winning mm-hmm. an oscar for the departed it's not like the, the part the departed is bad but after having done good fellows or the taxi driver or all that sort of thing winning it for the departed feels like strange and mm-hmm. that's a little bit what it feels like with this book although at the same time this book is more serious and somber than some of her other books, yeah. and so...
1: And so I think the fact that this is not our favorite of hers and we still love it so much kind of speaks to how great she is.
0: Yeah, and I think that and also... And how,
1: like, she, she says, like, I don't really know how to write about a boy whose parents are getting divorced, but I'll give it a try because two boys asked me to. I just... That's the most beautiful gift to give someone. It's like, I'm going to try my best to write a story that speaks to your experience and does it so well.
0: Yeah. And what I was saying is, it's it's not a comic novel, which a bunch of her books, most of her books that I've read are comic on some level, where Mm -hmm. it's like kids getting into mishaps or doing like kind of silly things. And like, those are all really well observed and good too, but like, they're not like, serious Mm -hmm. in in the way and so I'm wondering if like this sort of book that like we've talked about is kind of melancholy and and you know focuses on issues a little bit more maybe that was one of the reasons why it kind of gravitated because like the other book she won um like Ramona and her father that's one of the more serious Ramona books because her dad like loses his job in that one Mm -hmm. and so that kind of that got an honor medal right Mm -hmm. um
1: and Ramona Quimby age eight
0: I don't remember what's in that one. but I
1: don't It's good.
0: But again, like, it's kind of the paradox of being an author who's <laughs> so, like, good at making books that are lighthearted. You know, it doesn't mean that they're worse, but they're the sort of books that they don't always really scan as important. Yeah. Uh, whereas Mr. Hen- Dear Mr. Henshaw, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a serious, realistic book about divorce. Yeah. Um, anyway.
1: One last thing I'll say about Beverly Cleary, I just found out in the research we did this evening, um, is that PBS did a special on her, like for her 100th birthday. No, it's not PBS. It was broadcast on PBS, um, but the Oregon Public Broadcasting produced an original half hour program, Discovering Beverly Cleary. So I'd love to find that because it has a really extensive interview with her. She was 99. At the time. And it is, it's is—it's in her home in Carmel, California. And has photographs and stories from her life. So anyway. Um, that'll be interesting to track down if anybody can.
0: Yeah. I don't really know a lot about her life. So I'd like to watch it. Um, well, We've been going almost an hour. Yeah. Um, last few episodes were short. This episode's long. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry for people. A.K.A. my mother. Who don't like it when our episodes are longer. Um. Speaking of my mother, uh, you too can be like my mom and uh, email us at newberrychronicles at gmail.com. Now that we're done with this episode, you may have some thoughts on this that you want to tell us. Uh, Maybe you too are reading uh, Elliot Page's biography or um, are looking at uh, biblical commentaries. Uh, Maybe you hate uh, the way that we've done this. If so, let us know. Um, Also... You may have noticed uh, last time we teased it and we put it into the mixing of the final episode, but we have theme music now um, done by our friend Jake Ward. Um, So be sure to um, check out Jake Ward's Bandcamp page, where he just has like one album, but the guy makes music and does music um, besides just that one album. I don't know where you can find that. I'll have to ask him. But
1: um, yeah. in our next book?
0: Yes. So, uh, Dear Mr. Henshaw, 1984, um, we're moving into the 90s again. Um, the 90s. People were in flannel, rocking, um, you know, TLC and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, we are going to be reading a book that probably doesn't have TLC in it, because it's from 1992, um, Shiloh, um, that's the next book that we're going to be reading, 1992, Metal Warner. Um And, uh, yeah, I have not read it. Have you?
1: Nope seen the movie 10 billion and 5 times but
0: i've not seen the movie either so um looking forward to that anyway um that's what's next time anything else
1: thanks for listening all
0: right goodbye